This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Dombey, um, who is the author of The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. This book was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2020, and it's a really fascinating exploration and an understanding and analysis of the idea of some of these monuments um, that have been built across the United States with regard to um, the Civil War, particularly the Confederate side of Civil War. Um, But I'm going to let Adam tell us a lot more about that. First, I'd like to welcome Adam Dombey to the show and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Adam. Hey, thank you for having me. Excited to be here and uh, to be on the show. Um, I... uh... I came to the topic really inadvertently. I was a, um, <clears throat> this was not my dissertation. Um, I was doing a, when I was a first year grad student, I was looking at some, I had to write a paper on monuments. And I decided that I would go look up the local monument, which was the local Confederate mon- monument, which was called Silent Sam is the local name for it. And uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I wanted to look up all the dedication speeches, and I started looking at the dedication speeches, and what did I find? But uh, nobody had really looked that carefully at it, Um, but one speech was not in the newspaper. All the others were sort of, or many of them were reprinted in the newspaper, and I I looked at who the speech was missing by. It was by Julian Carr, and his papers happened to be handy uh, on campus. He had donated them, I guess, or somebody had donated them, and I went and looked through them, and was in the first file I looked at because it was organized by date. There was the speech. And the speech was really interesting because it essentially openly stated that he believed, so this is at the dedication, he said this monument being dedicated in 1913 was a monument not just to the Confederate soldier, but what the Confederate soldier did after the war when they overturned certain outcomes of the war and reasserted white supremacy. So he openly stated this is about white supremacy in his speech. And at the time, I thought this is just a, a really good teaching tool. I didn't really think about sort of how this could change the politics of the scene whatsoever. But I threw it out there as a letter to the editor and thought very little of it at the time. But activists took this research that really helped shift the debate from one about did this monument represent slavery to did this monument celebrate white supremacy, which is a different question, it turns out. And and they really ultimately, it, it went from... They started writing op-eds. They stood outside the monument on game days and talked to people as they walked by. And they 
they really changed public opinion in the Chapel Hill community such that Silent Sam went from being a non-issue in 2011 to Silent Sam being unwelcome such that over 10 departments passed resolutions calling for its removal from campus. And so that's sort of how I, I came upon the first half of the project. The second half, I stumbled upon by chance looking up a sort of, uh, well, some of the documents I wanted to access weren't accessible the day I came to the archives. And I went sort of on a wild goose chase, just looking up sort of one little strand I thought might be interesting for another project. And it was on that day that I found a bunch of uh, evidence of pension fraud. And at first I thought these are two different projects, right? Monuments and white supremacy and pension fraud by Confederate veterans. And only later, as I began playing with them, did I come to realize years later, this was not two different articles. This was actually the same project and would make a book. Uh, and so with the, uh, the shooting in 2015 in Charleston, the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and then the Unite the Right rally in 2017 sort of led me to put aside my dissertation and write this book instead. Uh, so in 2016, I decided to focus on this book, which was supposed to be book two and not my first book. And uh, and I, I shifted shifted tracks at that point. So this this is the not your dissertation, as you note. this is sort of a, a happenstance a research project that is really interesting and, of course, incredibly timely as we've had these conversations about the Confederate memorials across the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, as you say, this is kind of like a detective a puzzle where you found this piece of information and that piece of information. Can you talk a little bit about these Confederate monuments in general mm -hmm. and the concept of the kind of Confederate memory that they're tied to? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's sort of uh, sort of the basic premise of the book is that there's after the Civil War, you have the memory of the war and historians. You know, hist history is a reasonable reconstruction of the past based on primary source research, right? You sort of dig into the sources and you figure out what happened. That's what historians do. Memory is the way society remembers the past. So this includes things like Memorial Day ceremonies, monuments, the narrative taught in elementary school, right? So when you do uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, activities in elementary school where you make turkeys, that's part of historical memory. It's a way that we as a society pass on a specific narrative of the past generationally. And after the Civil War, there are multiple narratives that are put forward by various groups that are have very important political meaning at the time, right? These have very important politics. If we're looking about Thanksgiving as the classic example, uh, Thanksgiving <clears throat> becomes a holiday in, uh, in the 1860s during the midst of the Civil War. And it's really a, a way of trying to unite the North with a shared memory of the past. Similarly, there is an effort to create uh, a shared memory after the Civil War by white Southerners, specifically pro-Confederate white Southerners, in which the Confederate soldier is remembered as the greatest soldier who ever lived, that they fought for a noble cause, that they lost only because of overwhelming numbers, that they did not fight for slavery. And I should reassert, as always, that I like to point out, they did fight for slavery. The cause of the Civil War was slavery. Uh, you can read the Articles of Secession, and it's very clear, but they re-remembered it as being about 
states' rights. Because if you're looking at this in, say, 1890, if you fought a war for slavery, then you lost. If you fought a war for states' rights, well, you didn't really lose because states' rights is still a concept that's being used. And so they, they rewrite major aspects of the past. And so the basic premises, and, and we talk about this sort of narrative of history that white Southerners and former Confederates push forward as the lost cause, is the sort of name that historians have put upon it. It's based upon a book written in 1866. And it's the lost cause, in my opinion, the way I, I argue, is that the lost cause is not just a memory of the past. It's a memory of the past that is both premised on upholding white supremacy and that the narrative was used since the Civil War to try to maintain white supremacy and roll back the gains of African-Americans that they made during the war and keep them from making new gains as a political tool. But they also, not only is it racist, right, and used for white supremacy, but it's fundamentally based on lies, that there are levels of lies, if you will, within the lost cause, ranging from the most basic level of creating a story about someone fighting well in a battle that's not true, to much larger lies about why they fought, to even larger lies, the sort of fundamental lie that is uh, at the top level, if you will, that whites are superior. And that's its purpose. The purpose of all these little lies, or it serves to, it may not be always on purpose, but uh, it serves as a means of upholding white supremacy. And and how did the the particular um, you know the particular avenue in that you had with regard to Silent Sam, how did these memorials and and soldiers statues and so forth get connected into this this broader kind of revisioning of the lost cause. It's a really important question. I think the first thing we have to sort of establish is when these monuments are going up. These monuments are, there's sort of two types of monuments we should talk about. We have commemorative monuments and memorial monuments. Uh, memorials are ones that you find in, say, cemeteries. And you do see some of those go up immediately after the war. And they do serve multiple purposes. We should be clear, monuments can serve many purposes. But there's this initial push to put up, you know, to rebury the dead, put up some memorials on cemeteries. And only in the early 20th century in North Carolina, for instance, do you start to see many monuments that are commemorative and celebratory go up in public squares, in public spaces, in front of courthouses, in front of city halls, in front of the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera, right? In these sort of, uh, instead of town, in front of town halls. These are the places where you are making a statement, right? It, it says something about what you value when your courthouse has a monument in front of it. And if you have a monument to white supremacy in front of a courthouse where justice is supposed to be blind, this sends a sort of contradictory message, of course. And so this effort to put up these monuments only happens after the overturn of enfranchisement of African-Americans. It's only once uh, African-Americans have been disenfranchised that former Confederates have something to celebrate. In 1867, they don't have anything to celebrate. They've lost the war. They've lost slavery. African-Americans are voting. African-Americans have political power. By 1901, things have changed. The grandfather clause has been instituted. African-Americans uh, are basically unable to vote for all intents and purposes. And you have one party control of the South by 1901. And so that's when you see these monuments go up. And they're very sort of this 
overturn of the outcome of the war, which is done through violence and cheating and, and racism, a combination of factors, and terrorism in many cases, is sort of what's being celebrated in many ways. So these monuments are in many ways victory monuments. And the rhetoric used at the dedications is very similar, if not exactly the same, to the rhetoric being used at political rallies at the time. And so you see that, and the same people are giving them. So for instance, Julian Carr is the foremost Confederate veteran in the state of North Carolina. He speaks at more dedications than anyone else, as far as I can tell. He is uh, the leading Confederate veteran in North Carolina. He actually leads the United Confederate Veterans of North Carolina for many years, and then leads the entire national body, which is sort of the, the veterans organization of the day. And he is not only this leading Confederate, he's also a leading Democratic Party member who is giving money and speeches about white supremacy and how white supremacy needs to triumph. And he runs in 1900 for the U.S. Senate. He loses the primary, but he tries to out white supremacists, the other candidates. They're all trying to be the most white supremacists to get elected. And the rhetoric he uses is almost identical to the rhetoric he uses at these dedications. So these, these monuments are part of the same process. The same people are involved and, and they're very political in their take. And, and, and the way that you go through this book that I found really interesting is you have these kind of, as I said, sort of nesting of different, different aspects of components of the narrative around um, the sort of the lost cause and the understanding of the civil war from the Confederate side. Can you talk a little bit about the other aspects of the essentially what you call the fraud and fabrication um, that goes into this kind of dynamic and reconfiguration of Confederate memory? Yeah. So one of the things when we talk about historical memory, uh, the sort of classic statement you hear again and again is that when you study historical memory, you're not just studying what's remembered, you're studying what's being forgotten. Because you're looking at what's selectively remembered, which means you're also looking at what's forgotten. And the most troublesome parts are usually forgotten. And I have a different twist on this. So my twist on this is that you also have a third component. In addition to what's remembered and what's forgotten, you have a third component of what's fabricated outright. What stories are created to paper over the, the stuff that had to be forgotten? The stuff that is factually inaccurate, that totally never happened, people who never existed, outright lies. And I think these lies not only are interesting in their own right, but they allow us to see the most problematic aspects of historical memory. And so what I look for throughout this book is places where we can demonstrate somebody's lying about what happened in the past. And sometimes they're lying to make themselves look better. Sometimes they're lying to get money. But these lies, regardless of why they're being told, one of the reasons they're accepted is because they serve a purpose. They're being accepted by government officials, by leading political figures, again and again, because they help justify white supremacy. So again and again, these lies. So for instance, when we look at, say, pension fraud, what we find is that in North Carolina, is starting in 1901, it became very easy to, it became much easier to get a pension if you were a former Confederate soldier. Basically, all you had to do so was that you were indigent and that you'd served and that you hadn't deserted. That was pretty key. You couldn't have been a deserter, according to the law. Well, nobody's checking if you're a deserter, it turns out. And in fact, deserters get pensions at wildly high rates. Um, 
And so all these guys are getting pensions and they sometimes people knew they were deserters and they're allowed to get the pension still because it serves as a form of political patronage, which again, upholds white supremacy, I should point out. It serves also to create a narrative in which white people all stood together during the Civil War, that there was no dissent, that everyone supported the Confederacy because this myth of a solid South had to be created. We have this idea a lot of times when we talk about Southern politics that the South is solid. And historically, the South was not solid. It, in the 1890s, for instance, you had a biracial fusion uh, government take over the state of North Carolina. They get elected governor, they get elected Senate to the US Senate, they fusionists take over the state legislature, and they're very progressive, they're biracial, they include African-American and whites. And so if you're trying to unite all whites, under the banner of white supremacy, it is helpful if you have a narrative in which you can say, historically, everyone served, everyone who was white supported white supremacy, so you should support white supremacy. And so they create this history in which whites were not involved, in which Reconstruction was carpetbagger rule and blacks misruling instead of it being a biracial government. And when you look at North Carolina, a place where so over 30% of the Republican Party was probably white during Reconstruction. You really don't have a solid South or a solid white South, I should say, because we're when we talk about the solid South, we're usually ignoring African-Americans in those sort of in that terminology because they've been disenfranchised. And so the creation of a myth of a solid South is an important political tool, and it's done through lies. And it is ultimately achieved that through disenfranchisement and appeals to white supremacy, they are able to get enough of the white vote that Republicans become a largely non-factor in Southern politics for many years, of course, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. But it is a creation of the past, and it's not one that was always there. And so the use of lies is fundamental to, again, to creating this myth that all white Southerners supported the Confederacy, when in fact we know North Carolina, for instance, had high rates of desertion as well as high rates of draft dodging. And they had literally frontline troops during the Civil War had to come home to suppress dissent in the midst of the war. And so that's a very different story than white solidarity, which is the story that is useful politically if we're looking at, say, uh, 1905 or 1901 or even 1898. And so they create these myths, they create these lies, to create a solid South and a myth of a solid South, such as that they can get voters. And and so you talk about this in terms of the idea of people lying about what they did during the war. Um, and and that there's also, as you, you note in the book, the sort of fabrication about the, the Black Confederate soldiers. Um, and this also connects, I think, to the discussion of the pensions. Can you talk about that aspect of this, also this broader narrative? Yeah. So the, the Black Confederate mythology, and this is something that Kevin Levine has done a really great job. And I, I should point out, as always, that you know I'm building on the, on the, the shoulders of giants, um, the, the, the scholars who came before me. When I'm looking at monuments, I'm building on the, the likes of Karen Cox, um, who sort of wrote the definitive history of the United Daughters of Confederacy, when I turned to black Confederates in the later chapters and this myth that there were supposedly black Confederates. 
I'm building really on the on the shoulders of Kevin Levine and and his work on Searching for Black Confederates, which is another great book that's out there now. But what we find is that in the early 19 uh, or in the 1920s, and it's not really the early 1920s, it's often the late 1920s, uh, certain states begin allowing former enslaved people to apply for pensions for remaining loyal as slaves and serving their masters at the front. So in other words, Confederate soldiers frequently took enslaved people with them to war and then would use them as servants and you have them dig trenches and have them cook. And if they stayed loyal in the 1920s, they're able to get a very small pension. Now, I should point out, these pensions were explicitly different than Confederate veterans' pensions. They're given later. There's less money. Widows aren't allowed to get them. Um, and there's no requirement of loyalty to the Confederacy. The loyalty is to the former master because there is no assumption of loyalty to the state because they aren't citizens in the minds of Confederates, right? But if these individuals play the loyal slave and say, I was a loyal slave, they're able to get a small amount of money to survive Jim, the Jim Crow South. And what happens in time is that this myth of loyal slaves, this myth that there's, wide, there's thousands and thousands of, of devoted, lo, devotedly loyal slaves evolves into a myth that they were Confederate soldiers. And so you have one lie turned into another because the truth of the matter is frequently the pensioners who are getting these loyal slave pensions, for lack of a better term, they're called Class B pensions in North Carolina, for instance, these small pensions are not always being honest themselves about what they did. Almost again and again, you see them uh, mention how they carried their owner home, either wounded or dead. They all seem to manage to take their owner home uh, because this is sort of the sort of mythic story of the loyal slave. He goes with his master. He serves his master. When his master's wounded or killed, he brings them home back to, back to home. Right. And this is sort of the classic story. And what we find is that some of these individuals who are getting these pensions are literally five years old when the war ends. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here that no five-year-old carried anyone home from Virginia. Um, and, and I think we can say that with, with relatively certainty that a five-year-old is not carrying anyone home. And so when we sort of look at this more carefully, what we see is this myth of, of wide-scale loyalty among slaves. And, and let's be clear, enslaved people supported the Union. Um, and that's an important thing to remember. I have a, a good friend, Vernon Burton, who loves to point out he says, you know, the state of South Carolina may have lost the Civil War, but South Carolinians did not lose the Civil War because the vast majority of South Carolinians supported the Union because the vast majority of South Carolinians were enslaved African-Americans. And so if you look at it that way, you sort of flip it on its head. You have a very different perspective of who's included in our history. And so in that way, if we, we take these small number and we're talking less than uh, 400 in the state of North Carolina and probably less than 3,000 nationwide, uh, if I remember off the top of my head, which it may be, I may be off a little bit, but um, and we, we take them as a, a sample size. It's it's a minuscule number of, of people even applying for these pensions compared to the number of people, apply, number of African-Americans in the South applying for pensions for serving for the United States military, right? It's just the, the difference is different. It's, it's so striking, it's so large, but they become remembered Really beginning in the 1970s, you see an evolution. It's not in the 1970s that these loyal slaves begin being remembered as soldiers. And in fact, what's really interesting is that in 1901, 
or sorry, 1927, these monuments are being cited as evidence that white supremacy is a good thing. In 2000, you have people saying these pensions are evidence that the Confederacy didn't believe in white supremacy. Right? So there's a 180 degree turn on what these same documents are being used to try to prove. And so what I'm looking at is the evolution of lies and the evolution, because the truth of the matter is there were no black Confederate soldiers. There were thousands of African-Americans enslaved and free and pressed to dig trenches, to work for the Confederacy as a labor force. They were not soldiers. They were not armed. It was illegal under Confederate law to enlist or arm African-Americans until March of 1865, one month before the war ends. And even then, there's not enough time to put together a last-ditch effort to free some slaves to save slavery. And so we, we should be clear on that. And so once again, we find the lies are not only um, not only are there new lies, but there's an evolution of old lies. Yet those lies still work to maintain a narrative of history that upholds white supremacy even to this day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and you sort of trace through the, the points, as you've noted, that, that these particular shifts in the, the sort of historical memory and the Confederate memory correspond with other things that are going on in the United States at the time. So you have, you know, you have the, the sort of response to the disenfranchisement of African-Americans through Jim Crow um, in the 19, you know, and the, and the responses then is to build these Confederate memorials um, in the 1900s, the early 1900s. What was going on in the 1960s and 70s um, that also sort of shifted the conversation and the dialogue around this concept of the Confederate soldiers. So there are a couple of things. One is the civil rights movement is increasingly not being looked at as a, a fringe group that is negative, but as a positive group. And so being on the wrong side of racism, right? In 1950, saying that you're a segregationist isn't a bad thing if you're a Southern politician. Uh, by 2000, uh, most Southern politicians aren't going to publicly proclaim themselves segregationist, even if they are. Um, and so you have a shift in sort of what's socially acceptable. You also have a shift in the number of people that are accepting that slavery was a major part of the Civil War. You have TV series like the movie, uh, the, the miniseries Roots comes out in the 1970s, is a crucial moment in many ways because it it shows Americans the Civil War and slavery as this horrible thing. Because one of the aspects of the lost cause I should have mentioned earlier is not only that they deny slavery was part the cause of the war, they deny slavery was bad. The denial of slavery as the cause of the war is not initially, at least, a way of denying a belief in white supremacy. It's a denial of that they lost the war because slavery lost the war. There is a defense of slavery that is fundamental to the lost cause, that slavery was a positive good. And that's increasingly under attack. And so in an effort to show that Confederates are not terrible slave owners, they try to find African Americans who can prove that slavery wasn't that bad, and if what's better than an African-American who fought for it? And so sort of 
what's socially acceptable to to be celebrating and being an overt white supremacist becomes less socially acceptable. And as that happens, the lost cause has to be rewritten so that you can be celebrating Confederate memory without being seen as a racist, right? And we, we should point out when people say, I just want to celebrate our history. I just want to celebrate Confederate soldiers' history. Confederate soldiers, by their very nature, are all white. And so you are celebrating a white history inherently when you say that, whether you mean to or not. And the whiteness has become, in many ways, hidden. It's become unsaid. Whereas in 1903 or 1913, it would have been over. They would have said, we're celebrating these as examples of great white men. Now it's just our heritage. And so the white goes unsaid now. And so in many ways, this was an attempt, or it served in some ways, to to sort of make the Confederacy seem not as bad racially. And in fact, there are some neo-Confederates today. There's sort of two strands of neo-Confederate thought. One is an overt racist version, which says that, you know, whites were great and we should, and it still clings to the old, old ways. And another one that says the Confederacy wasn't even racist, that the Confederacy was a racially egalitarian society that had black troops that were paid at a higher rate than uh, in the Union Army and that, you know, there were more black troops in the Confederate Army than the Union Army. I mean, all of these are lies. They're totally false. But these narratives allow you to sort of separate the Confederacy and celebrating the Confederacy overtly from racism, though covertly it's still there. And it's still very clearly there because that narrative still upholds a, a narrative of history that allows you to believe things like, say, affirmative action are not correcting past wrongs, but are reverse racism. And and into this sort of dialogue and this this sort of re reconceptualization of the narrative, you also note that the sort of idea of the the lost cause was one that's that's one that's tied up with a kind of idea of nobility and masculinity. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of this sort of strain that runs through? the Confederate and neo-Confederate thinking? Yeah, uh, there's a very big gender dynamic when we're talking about masculinity and nobility. And this is sort of quintessential to to lost cause memory. And in in more modern lost cause memory, neo-Confederate memory, you'll often see people say, we're not talking about the causes. We're talking about the valor which they fought, even if it was a cause we didn't believe in, right? And so they fought for a cause they believed in at the time, and we should we should recognize them for that, even if we don't agree with the cause. Well, the problem with this premise is it fundamentally separates the way the war was fought with the cause of the war. And the truth of the matter is, you can only say we're going to celebrate the noble acts of the Confederate soldier if they fought nobly. And so you have to have a race desertion from that myth, right, from that narrative, or you can't really put up a monument to a group that had a high rate of desertion, right? It doesn't really fit the same. And so it also, it's harder to celebrate the Confederate soldier if we acknowledge the fact that the racial views held by Confederate soldiers frequently led to racial massacres. And so you have to erase other elements as well to sort of maintain this sense of nobility. But ultimately, at its core, one of the key things is if you're going to celebrate white men, White men have to have done something noble, and so you have to rewrite the past to make them noble. And they actually use this. There's a really interesting example of this when you look in the early uh, 20th century, 
in efforts to sort of justify disenfranchisement of African-Americans. And when we look at the efforts to disenfranchise African-Americans, and there are, there are numerous of them, you'll frequently see arguments made that white men have proved themselves already through their valor at Gettysburg and through their valor in the Civil War. So they don't have to take a literacy test, whereas African-Americans do, because they haven't proved their manhood yet. And when you see these arguments, there are two things going on. One is they're creating this, this myth that there's valor that is partially based on reality. There is some brave soldiers who d die and fight, and fight in a very courageous way for a cause that I find morally reprehensible, no question. But there's also plenty who don't. On the flip side, you're also erasing the fact that African-Americans fought against the Confederacy. The United States colored troops represented by the end of the war somewhere in the order of 10% of the United States military. In fact, the USCT has represents a larger force of men than the entire Army of Northern Virginia at its largest. And so when you think about that, that's a massive amount of manpower that is being transferred from, uh, in many cases, formerly enslaved people who self-emancipate themselves into manpower for the United States. But these individuals don't get recognized because then they would have the right to vote. And so this, this myth of white male masculinity being defended is part of the process. And other scholars have written a lot on this, um, more than I have. But the, the sort of justification, the way I look at it, the way I'm most interested in is the way that this is used to justify disenfranchisement of African-Americans and the political enfranchisement of white Southerners and specifically who has a title to vote. And and so you you also start the book out, and I found this really interesting with the, you know, the sort of controversy around Silent Sam, um, and and you made reference to some of the activists who had been sort of pushing um, very recently for the removal of Silent Sam. Can you talk about this kind of movement that we've seen? that also obviously um, came to fruition in Charlottesville a couple of years ago with regard to the marches there and the, the white supremacists there and how these activist movements have been sort of responding to both the narrative and the reality of these monuments. That's a really important question. And I think um, we need to first start off with just a few, few key facts that uh, I don't want listeners to miss because I think they're often overlooked. The first is Confederate monuments didn't become controversial recently. They've been controversial since they went up. It's just that African-Americans didn't have the political power in 1913 to say these shouldn't be put up. But from their erection, we actually see monuments being defaced in some cases within a week of their erection. In the, uh, in the case of one monument in North Carolina, it's put up, I think in 1907, if I remember off the top of my head, uh, it's it's painted over within a week of it being erected, presumably by someone who didn't like it. Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, the John C. Calhoun Monument, which for all intents and purposes is a Confederate monument, even though it's technically not because he's dead before the Confederacy, but it, it's part of the same movement of monument building uh, and served many of the same purposes. It's being defaced so frequently by African-Americans that according to oral histories, that's one of the reasons that the original monument is removed and a new one is put up in which John C. Calhoun is no longer so close to the ground. And the other reason being that supposedly the statue is very ugly. Uh, but anyone who says monuments have never been removed, should, I should point out that the people who put up the John C. Calhoun monument actually removed an earlier version of it to put that one up. Um, and so I always think that's very interesting. But 
Um, so these monuments are controversial from their start. They were meant to sort of intimidate African-Americans. We have oral histories from African-Americans who said they saw them this way, that these were meant to remind them where their place was, that these were political acts. And so there's been activism against them. If we look at Silent Sam more specifically, there have been calls periodically for his removal since at least African, since shortly after African-Americans were admitted to campus as students. And once that happens, you begin to see um, calls for its removal periodically, not every year necessarily, but there's an op-ed in the Daily Tarot periodically calling for it. We should also point out Silent Sam is painted again and again in its history. Silent Sam has been counted more times than we can count. Uh, there's an interview with a, a maintenance worker um, who's cleaning Silent Sam in the 1950s who's like, yeah, it gets painted every football game. And nobody complained when it was a Duke student or an NC State student painting the monument after their victory at football or basketball. And in fact, there's an account in the 1980s after the UNC wins the national championship of students painting Silent Sam UNC Blue in celebratory celebration of their NCAA championship, while police officers from both the UNC force and the Chapel Hill force watch laughing. Um, and so there was no problem with painting Silent Sam until a woman of color, Maya Little, decided to do it as a political act. And then suddenly it becomes something that needs to be arrested for, that needs to be enforced, that's problematic. Right? And so it's, there's a very clear sort of line here of, of what matters, right? Which type of painting matters that we should be clear on. But Silent Sam is also painted in 1968 after the uh, murder of Martin Luther King. So it's become, it was a point of, of protest for racial issues going back far longer than the recent history. I should also point out that activists, since I would say um, really 2011, 2012, have done an incredible job of utilizing historical research to educate the public. And I think they've done a better job than the UNC History Department. And I include myself in that group of UNC History Department as I'm a product of it. Um, I put this, you know, this is a book in many ways that activists forced me to write. Um, I, I didn't intend to. I realized it made me realize it was needed. I guess I should say they didn't force me to write it, but they made me realize that this book was needed. I didn't realize it until they went out and sort of shifted public opinion with historical research. They're the ones, it was these activists who, who stood out there and talked to people and wrote op-eds and wrote, talked to reporters and really shifted public opinion that really educated people about the history of this monument that took uh, my research and other people's research and really mobilized that historical research. And they've done an amazing job. And I think that young history uh, grad students should look at, at this and recognize the fact that their historical research can have real world impacts. Um, because I think a lot of times historians forget that, that our research can matter in the real world in the immediacy. And they did a great job of educating people. And so what you see happen is that these activists become more organized. And then as you have both the local shift, so you have the revelation about Silent Sam being overtly tied. And I should point out, it's not just overtly tied to white supremacy. It's overtly tied to white uh, racial violence. Violence aimed at African-Americans, because one of the things that Julian Carr says is he says, not only is this a, a monument to the overturn of African-American rule and white, and the return of white supremacy, let me tell you what I did to help you. So lest anyone think this was just about political organizing, he says, I horsewhipped, and excuse my language, I'm going to quote now, he says, I horsewhipped a Negro wench until her skirt hung in shreds. 
So he's bragging about the, doing this during Reconstruction. And so he's bragging that, that you know, he's, he's, that he's a violent white supremacist. And so that helps shift the debate locally. At the same time, you have this local shift. You have these national trends in which national events lead to a shift in our dynamic and how we talk about race. And perhaps you could put the beginning of that at 2008 with the election of uh, Barack Obama, or you can put it in 2015 with the shooting of um, at, in Charleston at Mother Emanuel, or you could put it in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. But these have made people, or 2017 with, of course, the uh, Charlottesville riot, and then in 2018, the pulling down of Silent Sam. But all of these together have led to a growing awareness of these issues by the white public. African-Americans have long known that these monuments were problematic. And I didn't fully understand this myself when I first started researching Silent Sam back in 2009, how problematic Silent Sam was to students and faculty of color. Because I'm a white guy, I'll be honest. And so when I walk by it, I see, oh, it's a monument. It, it doesn't offend my personhood, even if it offends my sensibilities, as uh, I think Fitzhugh Brundage said. Uh, something along those lines. I, I'm probably misquoting him slightly, but it's talking to students of color and faculty of color has helped me realize that, and I can never fully experience it because it's, again, I am a white guy, but I can listen. I, I've come to my realization that this was a point of intimidation, that they didn't like my friends who were uh, who were students of color when I was, tried to avoid walking next to him in some cases because they found him intimidating, the statue there. And what I've come to realize is that in 2009, I looked at Silent Sam as an opportunity to teach people about Jim Crow. That's what I thought it was in 2011 or 12 when I, I wrote that first op-ed uh, to the Daily Tar Heel, which sort of led people to realize about the speech that has become such a talking point. But in time, I've come to realize that I can only teach my students about Jim Crow if they feel safe coming to my campus. And so what's really shifted in some ways on UNC's campus was that with the growing awareness of what it meant and how counter-protesters began to come to campus more and white supremacists, it became a, a point that was drawing white supremacists and not just white supremacists, but armed white supremacists, men who carried guns. And I have to say, I've been as an alumni, I am deeply disappointed with the UNC Chapel Hill administration, how they've dealt with it and with the police force at the UNC Chapel Hill has dealt with it. Um, armed white supremacists on campus. They never should have been there. Um, were allowed to leave while still armed. Um, I mean, it's, it's very problematic, the sort of double standard used between how students are treated and how white supremacists are treated on campus um, has meant that Silent Sam is now a drawing point to armed white supremacists, which means students don't feel safe near it. And so once that happened to me, it became a not, there was no question what had to happen. Once you have armed people showing up to try to save Silent Sam, Silent Sam had to go uh, because he's a threat to the safety of students. And that our first priority as, as, as academics, as professors, our number one priority has to be and always should be the safety of our students. And and so we see this again. We also saw the same thing with regard to the Charlottesville incidents that led to the riots there and the loss of life. Um, and so the the sort of 
the two dimensions of protests around these monuments, those who are advocating for them coming down because they see them as this form of intimidation um, and, and discomfort and possibly threat. And then you have the, the move by people who want to protect them and, and advocate that this is a, a, you know, a kind of valorization, as you say, of, of honor and nobility, um, but are doing so in a context where their actions are essentially um, in the model of white supremacy. So we have the monuments fa- falling into that, you know, sort of contested zone, um, which also seems like the monuments themselves are living, breathing entities. I mean, I think we should, We I want to make two points in response to that, because I think this is an important point, is that these, you do have two sets of protesters, but they're fundamentally different. And I think we need to recognize that first and foremost, is that um, the, 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 those opposed to these monuments remaining on campus are by and large and fundamentally have been nonviolent protesters. They have been painted frequently. They are local protesters. They're activists that are part of the community almost always. They're led by students and faculty. They're, they're sort of part of the environment, and especially when you look at both Charlottesville and Chapel Hill, you see this a lot. Those opposed to the monuments removal are fundamentally different. They are not part of the local community usually. They are coming from outside. Often they are overtly tied to white supremacist group, not just a neo-Confederate narrative of history, but are fundamentally tied to other groups that overtly advocate for white supremacy. And we're talking, um, you know, League of the South. We're talking the Ku Klux Klan. We're talking neo-Nazis, right? And they're fundamentally violent groups, whereas the, the protesters asking for the removal are fundamentally nonviolent protesters. Um, they, and so I think we need to draw that, that line very clearly when before we, as a starting point, when we sort of think about these groups of protesters. But I think you're right. It is really important we sort of think about these, um, how these monuments are leading to conflict. And that the difference is, these monuments have always represented this conflict between ideologies. The difference is that those who oppose to white supremacy now have some political power, political power they didn't have when the monuments went up. And that's the fundamental difference in what we're talking about. So these monuments in many ways and the fights around them are a really interesting parallel for larger fights in our society about who gets a say in our politics. And so, for instance, when we look at heritage laws, these laws that are meant to protect monuments from removal, they seem to be part of the same anti-democratic impulse coming out of the Republican Party right now that comes along with voter disenfranchisement laws, such as voter ID, gerrymandering, um, making it harder to vote, voter intimidation efforts, all of these sort of elements of um, changing the, in North Carolina, you have when the governor was elected, who's a Democrat, the Republican legislature tried to change what powers the governor had to reduce the powers of the governor suddenly, right? This sort of anti-democratic impulse. When we lose, we change the rules, trying to game the census so that you can, people aren't counted. All of this anti-democratic impulse that some political scientists have pointed to as being sort of a a, demogra- a response to changing demographics of the country, that the Republican Party is losing the demographics of the country. And so they are trying to grasp through power through non-democratic means. I see these 
heritage laws, which are meant to take away local control from the local communities about what happens, because they basically ban local communities from removing monuments, and Virginia's removed their law recently, um, are fundamentally part of that same fight of sort of controlling who has a say in decision-making. And so the parallel is not just with the early 20th century when you saw similar laws put into place where local control was taken away so that local judges or officials were named by the state legislature so that areas where African-Americans were the majority couldn't still elect local officials. The parallels are also there um, in our current system when we see these anti-democratic impulses with voter ID and whatnot. And you can really see this in South Carolina's example, where South Carolina's law that was passed to protect Confederate monuments included a constitutionally questionable provision which said that you could not change the law without a supermajority of the legislature saying so. Now, you could have changed that part of the uh, law with a regular majority. And then, so it would be a two-step process. So it wasn't an effective means of changing the law, of, of sort of trying to protect it. But the impulse was clearly there that they wanted to make this harder for future legislatures to change the law than other laws. And so this anti-democratic impulse, I think when we look at monuments and the fights around monuments today, what we're really seeing is a, a mirror to the larger fights around democracy in our society as a whole and around race relations as a whole. And the, the heritage protection laws are recent, right? Yes, they really begin in, uh, the first one I think is South Carolina is actually in the in either the late 90s or early 2000. I forget if it's 99 or 2000 um, that it's passed. So they are recent. They've been passed um, in the last, in, in various southern states um, over the last 20 years or so that you've seen them go up. And and again, they um, we've seen some of them quite recently have been have been passed. And again, we're starting to see them removed as that demographic change goes into play. In Virginia, for instance, those laws are being removed, right? As Virginia turns blue, um, that law was removed and it was removed relatively quickly. It was one of the first. So I think it is a really good, in some ways, um, way of, of sort of watching how our politics as a country change is looking at heritage laws and looking at how states and communities deal with monuments and approach them. And so now that you finished this book, which was supposed to be the second book, but was the first book, Adam, what are you working on now? Well, that is, that is a really good question. Um, so I've got a couple couple projects going. I've got a project, um, I have an edited volume that is should be coming back from review shortly about Reconstruction and the legacy of Reconstruction. And sort of, it's, a, it's an edited volume coming out of a conference I ran in which we're looking at at Reconstruction broadly written and its legacies uh, at 150 years out. And I'm excited about that project. I'm working as well on a, a jointly co-authored project about a rabbi con man, because I haven't given up on my love of lies and fraud, a guy who uh, fakes it till he makes it in the 19th century, but he's also sort of the Forrest Gump of the 19th century. He pops up at various key moments He's there during the Seminole War. He's there during the uh, Sherman's March. He sort of makes an appearance at. He makes an appearance um, at the fall of Reconstruction. He makes an appearance in the Whiskey Ring uh, during the Grant administration. He makes an appearance at sort of the organizationing of, of modern reform Judaism in the United States. He has a role to play. But he's also a rabbi. But he's also um, 
run out of town at least four times or three times, a bunch of times. I forget how many times now off the top of my head, but he's run out of town because uh, sort of one, one step ahead of the law because he's, you know, defrauded people of their money. And so he's sort of a, a way of looking at the late 19th century and how the late 19th century functions and bringing together Jewish history and Jewish studies and American history. But then my, my dissertation book, the book based on the dissertation is the next project I will be turning to full time which looks at divided communities and the ways that the Civil War was not only a fight between North and South, but between Southerners within their communities and how those legacies play out. And in some ways, it's a prequel to chapter three of my, my current book, the book that just came out, The False Cause, um, because it's sort of laying down what happens when you have these divided communities after the war, because we know that they're forgotten largely, that the dissent and division within communities is largely forgotten, but it was there and it had to be put back together. So how do you put the pieces back together again um, after a deeply divisive war and a deeply divisive community? It's one thing to say, I don't have to see Northerners tomorrow, but if your neighbor shot your kid, you're seeing them every day when you go outside. And so how do you put that back together? And it's it turns out there's a lot of violence that's part of it. There's court cases. Uh, there's efforts to disenfranchise, there's efforts in politics, and and all of these sort of come together in a continuation in some ways of the Civil War through other means. Will you come back on the new books in political science and talk to me about that book when it comes out? For sure, I would love to. It's been, it's absolutely a pleasure to to get a chance to talk about our writing, as I think all scholars love to do. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adam Dombey, to talk about the false cause, fraud, fabrication, and white supremacy in Confederate memory. This book is uh, published by University of Virginia Press. I'm assuming it's available at the University of Virginia Press website. You, you are um, correct. Or your favorite independent bookseller or your favorite website bookseller, you name it, you can buy it from wherever you want. It's available for sale. Um, and this was published in 2020. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.